Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and I am honored to be a part of the teaching team. And as always, it's my pleasure to be here with all of you Bible-savvy women. It's one of my favorite places. I look out and see all you little Bible nerds, and I love it. I wish I could be at all your tables and hear the discussion. I'm sure it's rich and deep, and I would love to hear what you have to say. You know, this week we had the opportunity to dive into Psalm 143. It's the last of David's penitential psalms. You may remember a penitential psalm as one of a confession, but often it kind of looks like a psalm of lament. And that's because the author is lamenting over their sin and their sin and the problems that arise because of that sin. Now there are seven total penitential psalms. It's Psalm 6. 32, uh, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143, which we're looking at today. It's the very last one. Now, we've already looked at two of them during our study this fall. In Psalm 6, Deb was here and she reminded us that in deep distress, we should persevere in calling out to the Lord and share our hearts with him. She said, take your honest tears to a powerful, loving, and living God, because he's more than able to handle it all. We also looked at Psalm 51, and Misty reminded us that it's not just something we say, but confession truly is good for the soul. And in Psalm 51, David begins to clear the air with his heavenly father by confessing his part in the sin. And he repented of all the wrongdoing and he asked the Lord for forgiveness and then he laid out his sorrows and his pleas. But all of that was before he did that. By doing this, David does something that is very important. He's making it very clear who is God and who isn't God. It's a place of humility. And I think it's one of the best places in the very place all of our prayers should start from. Now, this week we looked again, at, we looked at Psalm 143. I, as I mentioned, it's David's uh, penitential psalm. It's one of the last ones. And I'm sure you saw some similarities to the other two that we studied this season. This psalm is a psalm of deliverance and guidance. And many believe that David wrote this psalm while he was in the throes of Absalom's rebellion. And in my Bible, the ESV version of the Bible translation, it says, my soul thirsts for you. That's the title at the beginning of it. And while I have no doubt that David was thirsty for that relationship with his son to be restored, this title tells me that David is way more concerned with his relationship with his heavenly father. I think that's because David knew that that relationship with his heavenly father was, would, would affect all his other relationships. He knew that ultimately his relationship with his heavenly father is where all those other relationships were going to flow from. And it was that important to him. If you haven't already done so, I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 143 and follow along. I'm going to read the first six verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give here to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. 
Therefore, my spirit faints within me and my heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. You know, I first read this, I was reminded of something my oldest son Taylor likes to say, and and because it's Taylor, it usually comes at a very inappropriate time and it makes everything really awkward. But I think Taylor would have read this psalm, the first verse of this psalm, and he would have said, well, that verse was very bold, of course, but I get a hint of desperation. He always has to end, a hint of desperation to everything he says, and we all just burst out laughing because it just breaks, the, it breaks the, the stress in the room every time. But he would have been right. I detect a hint of desperation in this first verse, don't you? I mean, you can almost taste and smell that desperation in these first two verses. And did you notice that just in verse one alone, there are two exclamation marks? Two. I thought, that's a lot for one verse, so I counted the rest of them. There are nine in these 12 verses. So I'm thinking, well, is that something that we do in penitential psalms? Like we just use a lot of exclamation marks. So I looked back, and although they do use them, they never go to the extent of nine in 12 verses. I think if David had been, had been texting this psalm to God, it would have been in all caps. <laughs> it's like he's screaming this to God. It's abundantly clear that in these first two verses, David is not in a good place. Not at all. In fact, I think he's in a terrible place of despair. He begins his psalm with this very bold request, though, doesn't he? He said, and and it's a bold request that's not based on anything he thought he deserved. He He didn't say, hear me and answer me because of what I'm doing. I'm your king. You anointed me. It's a bold request based on the character of the Lord and on nothing he's done. His bold request is based on the faithfulness and righteousness of the Lord. Now, I mentioned earlier that many believe this psalm is written while David was in the throes of Absalom's rebellion. And if you remember that sordid story of Absalom, he spent some time in in exile because he murdered his brother, Amnon. Amnon raped his his half-sister, Tamar because he lured her into the bedroom when he was sick. I mean, it's a sordid story for sure, and after all of that, David ends up in exile. And after a few years, he returns home to a very strained relationship with his father, King David. Maybe because David didn't handle all of it quite as he should have. But for any rate, it was a very strained relationship. He eventually began to go to the gate, and he would kind of talk down his dad's leadership. And then he'd talk up, well, what I would have done. And before you know it, he had all these people move their alliance behind him, and he had enough behind him to stage this rebellion against his father and try to overthrow King David. You know, I can imagine the pain that this caused David. I can't even imagine how awful it would be to be a king and have somebody try to overthrow your, your leadership and take over your throne. But how bad would it be if it was your own son your own flesh and blood. I can't, I can't imagine how emotionally devastating this would have been for David. But as we've seen in all the other penitential psalms and quite frankly, all of David's psalms, we don't really ever see David play the victim. 
He, he doesn't wallow in that grief and that despair, despair. Instead, he just takes it right where he knows to take it. He takes it to the Lord. He cries out to him. But he always spends time first confessing and clearing the air with his father, his heavenly father. And this time he says, I want to be judged fairly. That's because David knew he had a part in this. If this truly is about this severed relationship with Absalom, David knew he didn't handle it all right. He knows that there are two or quite frankly more than two usually sides in every severed relationship. And I think he's ready to assume his part of it. And he's asked the Lord to forgive him. And we've seen David do this before. And we know that David knows that he hasn't just sinned against Absalom. Ultimately, that sin of his is against the Lord. And that troubled him more. Any part he played in this severed relationship with his son is ultimately a sin against his heavenly father. And David is quick to recognize that. And he wants to confess it. And he trusts that he's been forgiven. He knows that because he knows the character of his heavenly father. He knows that he has a fair and righteous judge. So he knows he's going to be forgiven. But you may ask, now how can David know that he's been forgiven because he didn't even get to know Jesus? How could that happen? He didn't get to know of Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection. Look at Romans 4 on your verse sheet. This is a letter to the Romans. It's written by Paul, which... um, By the way, a little teaser, spring, we're going to Romans. I think you should polish off your silver, your silver fork, and your steak knives, because it is meat and potatoes. (laughs) We are going to dive into some good stuff this spring. But, But Paul's writing this letter, and he's speaking about the righteousness of Christ and how it's credited to those who place their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Paul does it in an interesting way. He goes back to the Old Testament to do it. So let's look at Romans 4. It says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, I want to take a minute just to explain this a little more because I think it's really important that we understand what David bases his confidence to boldly approach a sinless heavenly father and boldly ask for deliverance and guidance. See, the Old Testament makes it clear that God taught his people to approach him by way of sacrifices, and it was animal sacrifices. Remember the Mosaic law? They would sacrifice the animal, and then the priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar, and it would atone for their sins. Those sacrifices foreshadowed or symbolized the future shedding of blood and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That's what they were looking forward to. See, Christ's eventual sacrifice of his own life, the unblemished lamb, the lamb without sin, it foreshadowed, it fulfilled all those earlier sacrifices. He he was the fulfillment of all of that. So both the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers, which is what we are, are saved by grace through faith on the basis of that shed blood by Jesus, the Messiah. 
the Old Testament believers, they look forward to the sacrifice that Christ made. All of us, the New Testament believers, we look back at that one, that same sacrifice. I love that we are united with the Old Testament believers in Jesus. We were united in his sacrificial death. I don't want you to let anybody ever tell you that the Old Testament is outdated and you don't need to look at it. It is so, so important. It is the foundation of the New Testament and it points us to Jesus. And we see the Old Testament believers looking forward to the sacrifice and us looking back. So where did David, where did his confidence to boldly approach this sinless heavenly father and cry out so boldly to him? Where did it come from? It comes from the exact same place your confidence comes from that you can boldly approach your heavenly father. It comes from placing your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and it's based on the righteousness of Christ. David knows this and he believes that he's gonna be delivered. It will be because of God's righteousness, not his own righteousness. First John 1 says this on your verse sheet, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you've placed your faith in, in, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you stand before a perfect God covered in the righteousness of Christ. See, when God sees you, he no longer sees your sin. He just sees your beautiful white garment that was placed on you by Jesus. That's all he sees and he loves you. Now, although we're no longer separated from our heavenly father because of sins, our unconfessed ongoing sins, those can cause a, a strain in our relationship with our heavenly father. It can cause our relationship to kind of, kind of wane because those unconfessed sins may make us feel unworthy. We may feel like we can't approach him. I've, I've done way too much. And, and how could I even ask him to deliver me and guide me in this? We may feel shame. We may feel guilt. We may feel like we just don't deserve to cry out to him. He doesn't want to hear from me. See, keeping a short list of unconfessed sins in our life definitely makes your time with your heavenly father deeper and richer, and it feels safer and more secure to you. You'll want to share your heart with him. And David does that. In verses 3 through 6, again, in these verses, the desperation is palpable. David's in a really bad place. He's living on the run. He's weary. His soul is crushed. You could just feel the desperation. And I know that many believe this psalm is written about Absalom's rebellion. But you know, when you know more about David's life, it could have been written about almost any time in his life. It could have been written about when he was on the run from Saul. It could have been the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. It could have been the numerous family issues that seemed to just plague him. I think if it's truly written about Absalom's rebellion, I think all those other desperate times in David's life are really weighing on him. I think it's all kind of there and he's, he's tired. David's weary, he's, his soul is crushed. And I think at this time it would have been so easy for David just to turn away from God. I think he could have, because think about it, David was anointed by God to be king. There would be no doubt in David's mind he was doing exactly what the Lord had called him to do. And he had had one problem after another since the day he had been anointed. 
Or maybe at least from, the, from when he slayed Goliath, shortly after he slayed Goliath, that was a big victory. Saul becomes jealous and he goes on the run. And he's, the rest of his life has been one problem after another. He could have looked at God and said, God, you anointed me to be king. Why is this so hard? I'm doing exactly what you've called me to do in my life. I'm doing everything you want me to do. I don't deserve this. And he could have walked away from God. I'm pretty sure there have been a few times in my life I've thought that. I maybe have even said it a couple times and probably more than just a few times. David could have allowed these difficulties to cause him to walk away from God, but we don't see that at all. Over and over in Scripture, we see David at times of trouble. He's brought, his, brought on by his own actions or not. David is, has confidence to boldly cry out to his Lord. And that's because David's confidence comes from knowing God's character and remembering his goodness. I know, this is I know this because he does that in verse five. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your, of your hands. And then he goes on and he says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. You know, I read this. I just imagine David just crawling across a desert. He is desperate and he's reaching out for his Lord. And, and when I was doing this, I found a quote. It was by Nancy Spiegelberg. And she writes for a devotional called Our Daily Bread. But she said this, and I thought it was so appropriate. It said, Lord, I crawled across the bareness to you with my empty cup, uncertain and even asking for a small drop of refreshment. If I'd have only known you better, I'd come running with a bucket. I thought that was so appropriate. David knows God's goodness, and he knows it because he's witnessed it in his past over and over again, and he knows that if we ponder on it, the more and more we ponder on the goodness of God, we become less fearful in man and our circumstances. And that gave him the confidence to cry out to God with his thirsty soul. David knew to take a bucket, not a cup, he knew what the Lord could do. He knew that in his goodness that he could do big things in David's future, even when that future seemed desperate and very uncertain and hopeless. I dare say we have much to learn from David's prayers. Let's continue. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning every steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Now, not only do we feel desperation here, I think we feel urgency. I get the feeling David doesn't know how much longer he can stand up under this pressure he's under and under the stress he's feeling. And he's pleading with God to answer him quickly. David's zest for life seems to be waning, and he has very little or no will to live. He's desperate. But even in David's desperation, he knew what to do. He knew to look up and cry out to the Lord. And the first thing he does is he asks the Lord, don't hide your face from me. You know, number six in, uh, talks about some, has some words recorded. Uh, have been used for centuries. God told Moses to instruct Aaron and his sons to use these words recorded in number six. 
and they would use him when they talked to the people of Israel and to bless them. We've, David would have known these words. We have heard these words many times. They're on your verse sheet. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. See, it's a priestly prayer that's been handed down for centuries. And in fact, many worship services today, we still hear it from the minister or the priest. For me, it always meant lunch is coming because I knew we were near the end. But we've all heard these words somewhere. And here's a fun fact. In 1979, archaeologists excavated a tomb near Jerusalem, and they discovered two small silver scrolls. And on those were recorded this very blessing from number six. They dated those scrolls back to 7th century BC. This blessing has been around since the time of Moses and Aaron, and it's still being used today. But what does it mean that the Lord, we'd want the Lord to shine his face on us? It's got to be way more than just something the minister says to, to let us know lunch is on its way. It's got to be way deeper than that. Seriously, the fact that God would instruct Aaron to use these every time he was blessing the people, and it's still being used today, it's got to be very important. Here's what it's not about. It's not about our salvation. It's not about that at all, but rather it is an appeal to God to look favorably on his people and to grant his presence, his blessing, his guidance, and his grace. So for God to hide his face from David would mean at this point, David's feeling really distant from God. The stress brought on by David's dire circumstances have caused him to feel distant from the Lord. I think we've all felt that at times, haven't we? We felt alone, we felt like we just, there's no one there for us anymore. And I think he describes a lot of feelings that we've had Look at, and we looked back at three and verses three and four, it says he's crushed. He feels like he's sitting in darkness. His spirit is faint. His heart is sad. He's disappointed. He's dismayed. I dare say we've all experienced those a time or two in our lives. It's difficult during those times to remember that God hasn't left us, but we may very well have left him. I don't mean that we've denounced him or we've walked away from our faith, but, but don't we sometimes allow the busyness of the world and the things of this world and, and our circumstances, good or bad, they just kind of seep in into our lives and they start to draw our attention away from him. We become distracted with our circumstances, good or bad, and we're less at attentive to our relationship with the Lord. And it causes that relationship with him to feel distant. Just as any relationship at any time can feel. It doesn't have to be because one party has wronged us. It can just be merely that because we haven't had their attention. Their attention's been elsewhere. Please know this. When you're feeling distant from the Lord, he has not left you. He is always, always with us. Even if we're not paying attention to him. Look at Psalm 139, your verse sheet. It says, where, I go, where, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Our heavenly Father never leaves us. And David knows this, but I think in verses seven and eight, he just wants to be reminded. He wants to be reminded that the Lord is there. He says, remind me of your presence. Open my eyes, open my ears so I can hear you. Guide me, help me know that you're there in this difficult, dark time. He just wants to be reminded that the Lord is near to him. I think we've been there before. You know, as I was thinking about these strong emotions that David had been feeling, I began to think about, I wonder what God must have been feeling when David hit this point and started to cry out to him. What was God feeling? I personally think it was music to God's ears. I think he wants to hear that from us. I imagine that God's heart soars when one of his children is deeply troubled with their circumstances and they hit rock bottom and they finally look up and focus their attention back on him. And then they cry out to him for deliverance and guidance. You know, it'd be like if a, if a family member or a friend has been separated from me for a long time and they return, your, your heart is overflowing with joy. I imagine God's heart doing the same thing as David pleads with him to make his presence known and to guide him and instruct him. I think, it's, I think David's pleas are just music to God's ears and it reminded me of a chorus from a song that I love. It's called Better Than a Hallelujah. And this course goes like this. It says, we pour out our miseries, God just hears a melody. Beautiful, the mess we are, the honest cries of a breaking heart are better than, better than a hallelujah. I think God's heart soars when we turn to him. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a man who made many poor choices in his life. And it seems like he's almost hit rock bottom here. He, he could have easily said, I've done way too much. I'm not worthy of asking God for his help. And he could have just withdrawn from him completely. And, and he'd be withdrawing from the very one, the very one who would have been able to deliver him and desired more than anything to deliver him. The very one who loves us more than we can even imagine and wants his very best for us, just like he did for David. Like David, we have never fallen so far that we can't turn our eyes back to the Lord and cry out to him. And when we do that, God's heart is happy. His heart is so happy because he knows in our weakness, he's gonna be strong. People are gonna see his strength through our weakness. He knows that his great name is gonna be glorified and his great reputation is gonna be known because of our deliverance. It's a beautiful place and it's music to his ears. Never stop crying out to the Lord. Let's finish up by reading the last four verses of Psalm 143, starting in verse nine. Deliver me my enemies, O Lord, from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. 
Now, I would dare say that most of the exclamation marks came in these last four verses that we read. David is definitely uh, getting to the meat of this prayer, and he's wanting the Lord to deliver him. And he says, I fled to you. You're my refuge. I'm begging you to deliver me from these desperate situations I'm in. David pleads for deliverance all based on the Lord's character. He says, teach and guide me because you're sovereign above all. He says, you are my one and only God, and you're over all other gods. You're over everything. And then he says, preserve my life so others will know your great name. I want to make your name known, your reputation known. He says, because of your righteousness, restore my troubled soul. Not on what I've done, not because I deserve it, because of who you are. And lastly, he says, in your steadfast love, protect me from my enemies. David knows of the never-ending, unconditional love of his, of his Lord, and he's basing his deliverance on that. These four requests are not based on anything David thinks he deserves. It's not on his own merit, but solidly on Dave, what David knew to be true about the Lord's character. And as the Lord's servant, David trusted God and his plans for him. He didn't, he didn't go on and say, okay, now, now this is how I need you to do it because this is the easier way and and my guys are trained to do this. No, David just said, do it. It's kind of like he prayed that really difficult prayer that we probably all should pray in our lives. It says, do whatever it takes to accomplish your plans. That's a bold and sometimes very scary prayer. But that's where David is at this point. You know, I tend to think that as much as David's crushed soul thirsted for deliverance from these circumstances, which I'm sure they weighed on his mind, I think David's soul thirsted even more for a renewed, restored, and right relationship with his heavenly father. And here's why I think that. When you look back at these 12 verses of 143, only three of those verses address, directly address that he's being pursued by his enemies. All the other nine verses address David's desire for a restored relationship with his heavenly father. It tells us that David wanted his heavenly father to quench the thirst of his desperate soul, not only to be delivered from those dire circumstances, which I'm sure weighed on his mind and his heart at this time, but even more, it was to have his soul quenched by a Lord that would pull him closely and pull him back into this relationship with him. You know, it reminded me of a, uh, of a uh, time in our early, in our marriage, it was when our, young, our daughter Kaki was born. She was barely five months old and they had, when she was born, she had cr- something called craniosynostosis. And this is just a bunch of big words put together that talks about the skull, the, the head, the baby's skull, it's already fused together. And so she didn't have a soft spot, she didn't have, and so her head was really misshapen and, and we knew early on something wasn't right and they detected it. But because of all of this, she had trouble drinking her formula that we were to give her. And she would get pressure when she would start to suck on the bottle and she would start throwing up. So she would take like maybe one or two ounces of formula at a time and then just throw most of that up. So she was never very happy. And we learned later that's because of the cranial pressure it was being caused by the um, 
the skull, not expanding. So it left untreated that the brain would not be able to grow. So we spent some time um, early on getting ready for surgery because we knew she'd have to have it. And during that time, she only gained a few pounds. She barely weighed nine pounds at about six months. And she was always, always desperately thirsty and hungry. You could just see it. She was never satisfied. She was cranky. She was never completely full, and she didn't sleep well. After her surgery, we were told to wait for her uh, in the pediatric ICU, so my husband and I went there, and they said that as soon as we're finished, our, your two doctors will be bringing her back there. So we see him coming, and we see one of the doctors holding her, and he's feeding her a bottle. And it's a big bottle, like we've, we would never even dream to give her eight ounces of formula. And he's just feeding her, and her little hand, one of them, is just white-knuckled in the air like this, just like this. And the other one has his finger, and he, I'm, it's a death grip on his finger. And you could literally see and hear the, the formula coming out of that bottle into her tiny mouth. And she sucked down eight ounces in like five minutes or less. And we were all just like this. And the next thing she did, she just relaxed, and fell fast asleep in the doctor's arms. She was completely filled up, completely satisfied, like she had never been before. She was filled and at rest, safe and secure in her doctor's arms. It was such a beautiful thing for us to witness because we had watched her struggle for five long months. I think here in 143, David's in that same place. That's where he wants to be. He wants to be filled with God's word. He wants to be content and led by God's spirit. He wants to be safe and securely resting in the arms of the very one David knows who is more than willing and more than able to, to take care of all his dire circumstances. Look at Psalm 107 on your verse sheet. This is from the NIV translation. It says, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good, time, good things. And look at John 4. This is when Jesus is speaking to the, the Samaritan woman when he meets her at the water well. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to an eternal, eternal life. There's so much we can take from this penitential psalm written by David. David knew he hadn't always gotten it right, and he had probably made some really poor choices in his life, but he knew that because of the Lord's character, he could boldly cry out to him. He could ask him and beg him for deliverance. I dare say we too haven't always gotten it right. I know I haven't. Just driving here this morning, I probably need to sit and confess. Just driving here. I, I, people cutting you off, you just want to scream at them. My heart was in the wrong place. We make poor choices like David. We make poor choices all the time. But like David, with confidence, we can boldly cry out to the Lord for deliverance and guidance. And how do we do it? What David taught us, he's to boldly approach the Lord with their prayers. First, he says, be quick to confess your sin and remember God's goodness. David did it over and over again. Keep a short list and remember his past provision for you. Secondly, make a close relationship with the Lord your number one priority. It should be over any other relationship in your life. 
any other relationship, any of your circumstances. Thirdly, base your bold requests not on your own merit, but rather on the Lord's character. His, his character is solid and can be trusted. Ours at times is questionable. Fourth, trust the Lord and His plans for your life. And let me tell you, that can only happen when you know His character and you remember His character. See, we have a Heavenly Father who wants to hear our pleas, and when we boldly cry out to Him from a thirsty soul, we can be confident that He's not only going to hear us, we're just not noise. He's going to listen to us. He's going to be attentive to our prayers, and He will deliver us, and He will guide us. Just remember His character and trust Him enough to boldly pray, do whatever it takes to accomplish your plans for me. Now, I was given something yesterday I want to read. Uh, it's a book of poems. It's written by a woman that goes to West Campus. And I was thumbing through it this morning, and I, I thought, this is the perfect thing to read to end today. It's called Trust His Steps. It says, when faced with deep despair and wondering who is there, just bow your head and say a prayer and trust the God who cares. When you are weak and need his touch, just call on him to fill you up. He'll strengthen you in ways unknown when you feel down and all alone. He'll meet your needs. He knows your pain. He'll strengthen you when you feel drained. Sometimes he uses a special tool. He'll send a friend to be the fuel, to encourage you along the way to help you face another day. He is your life and knows you best. His love will lead, so trust the rest. He'll undergird and give you hope when you're weak and cannot cope. He'll take your weakness and lead within, so trust his steps where strength begins. Let me end this in prayer. Father, we love that you give us your word, and we are, we are honored to be able to open it up. Father, I pray that every time we open it, we honor you by how we use it, how we apply it in our lives. Father, I pray that these truths are embedded in our hearts and none of us leave here the same, that we find areas of our lives that can be refined and changed and glorify you more. Father, we love your son and it's his great name we pray. Amen.